a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, can't believe it. Final program of 2023. I'm sorry, 2022. Sorry, got a little ahead of myself there. <laughs> uh, can you tell that I'm, I'm ready to uh, close the books on this year and get on to whatever comes next? Although, I have to say, 2023 looks like it's shaping up to be a most interesting year. And I'm going to be giving you uh, some further details on this. Actually, I'm going to share with you a little bit later on in the program uh, the number one speculation by Doug Casey for 2023. And I'm just going to give you this hint. Watch those central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. They're going to be coming. And I don't care if I sound like a, you know, wild-eyed conspiracy theorist, but the more you look into this, or at least the more I look into this, the more I realize if you want to control a population, digital currency is the way to do it, especially a digital currency that's assigned to some kind of a a social credit score or otherwise allows government to, uh, well, basically do with your money uh, what it was doing with your information in terms of influencing, you know, the major social media platforms. Yeah, yeah, let this point of view through. No, no, no. Blunt that point of view. Black that one out. You know, cancel that account. Suspend this one. There's a lot of hinky stuff that's going on, and uh, I don't think any of it is because, well, these folks just have our best interests in mind. Maybe I'm just overly suspicious, but I'm also very dedicated to the idea of freedom. And because of that, uh, I'm going to uh, to have to question some things, maybe somewhat severely. Anyway, I'm glad you're part of the show today. If you're just tuning in for the first time, I'll do my best not to scare you off within the first segment. In fact, I'm going to assume that you're probably tuning in at some level because you have an attachment to freedom, or at least the concept of freedom. I I believe that's one of the common factors that would lead people to click play or to listen or to tune in and to say, okay, what's Hyde up to today? Well, if you're serious about maintaining your freedom, you have to know what came before you. I think it was Cicero who said, you know, those who don't know history are forever children. I'm I'm paraphrasing, but, but the point is, if somebody else has to tell you about everything that came before, essentially you're at their mercy. Got a great article here from my friend Robert E. Wright. This was published by the American Institute for Economic Research. Freedom's future requires understanding the past. Robert makes a marvelous case here for why we can't just have this this fleeting, oh, I brushed up against history once, and yeah, therefore I'm, you know, pretty smart about this stuff. We have to really know what exactly is, you know, what took place, what, what got us from point A to point B, and what is the intent of the system of governance that the founding fathers gave us? He says, too few Americans, even among the liberty-loving, exhibit sufficient understanding of America's smaller government past to articulate a realistic smaller government future. Now, he points out many libertarians can parse doctrinal differences between Hayek, Mises, Rand, and Rothbard, but few can accurately describe how American society functioned before the rise of the paternal state during the New Deal. And his point is that needs to change if America is ever to regain its original, limited, but efficient system of governance. 
Robert E. Wright says liberty is perhaps best positioned in money matters. Scholars like George Selgin and Larry White have explained how commodity money systems, monetary systems rather, like the classical gold standard and competitive markets and media of exchange worked in the past. They understand the benefits and pitfalls well enough to step in with politics and products or policies rather and products should the current fiat system collapse. Now, he says some scholarly articles and books about private governance have emerged, but so far the literature barely scratches the surface of the historical lessons available to us. Although Milton Friedman and many others pointed to how it might be possible for markets or private clubs to supplant government in various instances, the discussions tended to be theoretical rather than grounded in verified empirical examples from other places or times. Consider, for example, the lengthy debate over the extent to which lighthouses are public goods in the economic sense of being non-rivalrous and non-excludable. Thanks to research by bona fide economic historians like Vincent Galoso, we now know that purely private lighthouses existed. They were eventually crowded out by governments, the monopolies of which were later justified on the historically ignorant premise that lighthouses are pure public goods and hence a service that only governments can provide. The extent to which historical ignorance rules liberty discourse is again on display in Andrew Koppelman's new book, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Now, the book's main title, Koppelman recently explained, is both a metaphor for libertarian thought and an actual 2010 event that he describes as follows. Quote, so Obion County, Tennessee, did not have its own fire department. It contracted with a nearby town for fire protection, but it didn't do the contracting. Each individual citizen made a private contract with the fire company for protection, and there was an old man named Gene Cranick who'd been paying his fee for years, and he's getting old. One year he forgot, and his house caught fire. His wife called the fire department, and the fire department told him, Sorry, you didn't pay your fee. We can't help you. Eventually they came down in order to make sure the fire didn't spread to his neighbor's houses because his neighbors had paid the fee, and his house burned down. This generated a furious debate in the press afterward about whether this was appropriate behavior. And there were folks on the left and the right who agreed that this was the true face of libertarianism. This was the vision of the future libertarianism was offering. End quote. Now, Robert E. Wright says, like the debate over lighthouses, the discussion of the Cranach fire shows a shocking ignorance of how private fire protection actually functioned in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. The point of failure in the Cranach fire was the government fire department's lack of incentive to remind him to pay his $75 annual fee, something a for-profit fire company would not have allowed to occur, not out of any regard for Cranach, but of course out of its own self-interest. But the culprit in the broader story is the over-regulation of property insurance. Before the rise of big regulation, insurers minimized fire damage by owning or contracting with private firefighting companies and by offering premium rebates to building owners who implemented safety precautions scientifically developed by a consortium of of insurers. Interestingly, Cranach's insurance policy contained a clause that allowed his insurer to reduce its payout in the event that he did not pay his fire department fee. Perhaps the insurer thought that the threat was sufficient incentive to induce insureds to mark the darn due date down, but a news article indicated that it did not invoke the clause when settling Cranach's claim. Either Cranach's insurer wasn't very astute or, more likely, some insurance regulation or regulator made it too costly for the insurer to ask insureds for proof that they're up to date on their fire insurance or fire department fees, rather. Mortgage lenders routinely require their borrowers to prove that they have sufficient insurance but they face a less cumbersome regulatory environment than insurers do. 
Robert Wright says regulations also likely made it too costly for insurers to lobby Cranick's County to contract with the fire department on behalf of its residents and simply add the $75 fee to everyone's tax bill, or for insurers themselves to pay the fee and add it to policyholder premiums. In any event, the Cranick cluster was in no way a libertarian vision of the future. Other examples of the possible private provision of presumed public goods abound in areas like civil courts for private arbitration, education with home or pod schooling, income redistribution, that would be charities, job training, apprenticeships, military defense, privateers and private militia, policing with private uh, security services, regulation, as in self-regulating organizations, the social safety net, like disability, life, unemployment insurance, annuities, and transportation infrastructure, meaning privately owned toll bridges, docks, lighthouses, roads, tunnels, and wharfs. So he concludes, when confronted with issues regarding the necessary extent of the state, liberty lovers need not rely solely on economic theory nor hypotheticals, because the historical record often can light the proper path towards smaller, more efficient government. Isn't that nice to have a reminder that, uh, you know, it wasn't always this way, and yet I think a lot of us have been raised with the idea that, no, no, it's, this is always how it's been, and, or, or at the very least, if this wasn't how it always was, this is what the founders intended us to eventually transform into. I think there's some variant of that that goes around about election time. Oh, yes, this is exactly what we wanted. Um, You know, politicians are happy to bend the truth however it best suits them, so long as they get to remain in power and so long as they have access to, you know, the taxpayer's money. Well, it's nice to have a little bit of historical perspective to fall back on here and to realize that, you know, there there was actually a time. In fact, um, in the next segment, I'm going to go into some detail on this, but some people's jaws drop when they hear, what, there was a time when there was no income tax. Yeah, for like the first 150 years of America's existence, there was no income tax. And yet, roads were built, bridges built, libraries, hospitals, museums. A lot of great things happened during that time, and there was no direct income tax. There was no direct accountability from the individual citizen to the federal government. Well, how could that be? Well... Robert E. Wright has touched on some of them in this article, and when we come back the other side of the break, we'll get Jacob Hornberger's take on this. Jacob from the foundation, the Future of Freedom Foundation, he uh, he talks about his favorite era in American history. In other words, the era where Americans were most free. Now you might think, well, that was early on, right after the founding. Nope, nope. There was actually uh, there was another period. And when he points it out, you'll understand why he talks about that period as, oh yeah, those really were the golden years. I guess the bigger question is, how can we get back to those principles? Trust me, I spent a lot of time thinking about that myself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to my sponsors. They include lifesavingfood.com as well as monticellocollege.org. I'd also like to extend a quick invitation here if you haven't subscribed to my show notes. I'm not telling you that they're going to uh, make all your dreams come true or you'll wake up each day with pearly white teeth and uh, minty fresh breath, but I'm telling you, if you are serious about keeping your thumb on, uh, you know, on top of what's happening in the world that's worth knowing and worth considering, I will do my level best to provide you with some information for your consideration. I'm not here to tell you what to think. 
I just want to share with you information that is timely, it's credible, and upholds the principles that are actually conducive to individual liberty, freedom of conscience, private property rights, and the free market. So if that floats your boat, visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on show notes down at the bottom of the page. You'll see the subscribe button. Throw me your email. I'll send you a copy each day that I do the show. So people who want to rule us, that is the political class, they really want us to believe, no, 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 this is the system that the founders intended. And thankfully, Jacob Hornberger begs to differ. In fact, he describes his favorite period in American history and demonstrates just how far we have strayed from authentic freedom. Here's how he puts it. He says, my favorite period of history is the United States in the years 1870 to 1915. Why? Because he says it is the freest period in the history of man. Now, was it a libertarian panacea? No, there were, in fact, infringements on liberty, such as the violation of women's rights, the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1870, compulsory school attendance laws in Massachusetts, and others. But in terms of economic liberty, he says there is nothing that can match it. So imagine, no income taxation or IRS. People were free to keep everything they earned. No welfare, including Social Security and Medicare. Charity was purely voluntary. No drug laws. People were free to consume, possess, or distribute whatever they wanted. No immigration controls. Everyone was free to come to the United States. No minimum wage laws. Very few economic regulations. Economic enterprise was free of government control. No foreign wars, interventions, wars of aggression, coups, state-sponsored assassinations, torture, or indefinite detention. No passports. No Pentagon. No enormous standing military establishment or military-industrial complex. Instead, simply a basic military force. No CIA, no NSA, no FBI, no foreign aid, no foreign military bases, no departments of education, labor, commerce, and others. No regulatory departments or agencies. No compulsory school attendance laws or public school systems except in Massachusetts. No Federal Reserve System. No paper money. No gun control. I know you think, how, how did they keep from destroying themselves? Well, gee, I don't know. Somehow with freedom, they figured it out, didn't they? Jacob Hornberger says that was without a doubt the most unusual society in history. And it was also the most prosperous society in history. Americans had discovered the key to ending poverty. It was also the most charitable nation in history. When Americans were free to accumulate unlimited amounts of wealth, they used it to build the hospitals, museums, libraries, and charitable foundations. So he asks, why is all this important to us? Well, because it shows what can be accomplished. If our American ancestors could achieve these things, then so can we. In other words, we don't have to resign ourselves to accepting the reform of the welfare-warfare state way of life that statists have foisted upon our land. He says, I say, let's make the the following New Year's resolution. Let's reject welfare-warfare state reform, which only constitutes a warmed-over form of serfdom. Let's instead resolve to achieve what our ancestors achieved and then build on it with the aim of bringing into existence the freest, most prosperous, peaceful, charitable, and harmonious society in history. Now, the funny thing is, I know that there are people who are like, oh, yeah, yeah, rolling their eyes. Yeah, you think it's going to be all, you know, sunshine and roses. But do, do you not see the point that Jacob Hornberger is making? It's been done before. And no, it wasn't all sunshine and roses. There were still flaws, and there will be. There always will be. 
but the freedom was unprecedented, and the ability to correct wrongs was still there. Why couldn't we do likewise? I'd be interested to hear what some of the answers, I'm sure somebody, well, because there's so many more people, and with more people, you need more state control. That sounds like something statists would want me to believe, but I don't necessarily believe it. All right, moving on. I want to share an article with you from Todd Hyen from offguardian.org. Now, I work from home, and I'll, I'll affirm what he talks about here. There are some perks about working from home as well as some serious drawbacks, but he takes a closer look uh, in, an, in an article titled Fun at Home. He says, so working at home is a dream come true, eh? I'll bet. What fun, a permanent snow day for all. Stay in your PJs all day, go at your own pace, play a few video games here and there, take a nap once in a while, raid the fridge, have a beer, uh, unless you're monitored constantly by Big Brother, which I believe in most work-at-home situations you are. He says, I doubt if it is as fun as all that. Wife or husband is around 24-7, kids are definitely nonstop. Big Brother, as mentioned, is breathing down your neck, but it's still better than dealing with traffic or the train every day, going into the brick and mortar day in and day out, right? Right. Now, he says, I've asked a few people about in this uh, work-at-home predicament what they think about it. Most said, it's great. That's the title for this article. A few said they were going crazy due to all of its drawbacks, but it seems the majority are fine with it for now. Now, he says, I say for now because, like most things, COVID has changed in our lives. It seems that some time has to pass before we start feeling the ill effects. By then, most people don't seem able to connect the dots. They get anxious, depressed, and unsure of a happy future, but seem to have no idea why. That's always a difficult thing to nail down in any situation, the why of it. So he says, in mental health, I would say it's probably one of the biggest difficulties. Is all that misery due to a traumatic childhood? A tyrant father? A doting mother? Is it drugs or alcohol? Is it adolescent bullying? Is it the environment? Health? A mean and abusive spouse? An a-hole boss? Genetics? Is it all the insanity we've been subjected to since COVID appeared out of a Chinese clear blue sky three years ago? That last one is seldom seen as the culprit, but he says, take it from me, when it comes to general anxiety and depression, it's probably more often the culprit than not. By extension, he says, I'd say, the, say that about the work-at-home situation as well. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Well, he says, I'll tell you. Now, keep in mind, this may be a stretch to some, and maybe it is, but he says, you've got to keep in mind that all this, in his opinion, is planned. And when something this massive is planned with a very clear intended result, then just about anything could be part of the plan. He says, I think shutting down the work world and forcing everyone to sit in their little domestic cubby holes, isolated from just about everything all day long, is definitely part of the agenda. Now, he says, that's just me, folks, but you know me pretty well by now, Dr. Doom. But as Dr. Freud once apocryphally said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, meaning maybe the shift of the workforce into home office mode might not be anything at all nefarious. <clears throat> So what is, to, what is important in the care and feeding of a human being? Well, one vital thing is to avoid too much isolation. Sometimes being alone in nature is a great thing, but he says, obviously, I'm not talking about that sort of isolation. I'm curious to know if management has noticed a drop in creativity from their at-home workforce. Of course, we have Zoom and chat and, or Zoom and, and other forms of mingling with the cyber versions of humans, but he says... I can't quite wrap my head around how that sort of cyber contact is as healthy and thus as conducive to the good work output than hanging out at the water cooler yakking about the project your team is working on. Now he says, maybe I'm wrong, 
But that's just making a comment on work productivity. What about human mental health? A lot has been written about this, usually from the standpoint of pros versus cons. Needless to say, there are certainly advantages to working at home. I don't need to list them here. And probably the healthiest arrangement is a little bit of both, which now seems to be the trend, at least for now. As with everything else we're experiencing in today's movement toward the new tomorrow, we're at the early stages of it. And he says at this point in time, there's not all that much that would be considered mentally or spiritually destructive. But he says, don't kid yourself. This movement toward leaving the workplace situated in a downtown high-rise to your little spare bedroom, basement, or garage at home is not an organic movement due to social evolution. This phenomenon marches more to the drum of the agenda. And as such, he says, there is plenty to worry about. We'll come back to this commentary in just a few moments. I've got a link to it in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing with you this article from Todd Hyen from OffGuardian.org, which, uh, by the way, I recommend as a great resource for wrong thinkers. Not just Todd, but the whole website. They've got some some pretty outside-the-box thinking. And, and to be clear, I don't agree with everything I read on there, but there's a lot that really stops and makes me think, and I like that. It's definitely a... it's. It's a nice break from all the uh, pre-approved opinions that are being proffered by corporate media. Which means, of course, they make a few waves and corporate media really doesn't like them. And social media does its best to try to, you know, intimidate people. Now, are you sure you want to go to that website? Well, there might be misinformation there. By the way, Connor Boyack, I think, had a really great rule of thumb. I saw him post on Twitter the other day. He says, anytime someone in government starts to speak about misinformation, you can just substitute the word information. Instead, because that's really what they're worried about. So as Todd Hyen is talking about uh, this work from home tendency, he says, this is not really the product of social evolution. It wasn't like we finally grew to the point where, yes, this is the this is the way of the future. He says, this phenomenon seems to march more to the drum of the agenda. Now, he says exactly what that looks like. I can't say, but watch the Bruce Willis film surrogates to get a taste of it. Common sense tells us that big business cannot possibly believe that having all their employees at the end of a Zoom wire, well, that's kind of an archaic metaphor, is a good idea. Look at any photograph of a big city skyline and tell yourself that all those skyscrapers can be easily given up. He says, I don't think so. Something is going on here that we don't really see a clear picture of, and it probably isn't pretty. Maybe, like so much else, it has something to do with control. Imprisoning the workforce in an electronically surveilled environment with a careful and watchful electronic eye monitoring every move. Sure, you can do that in an office building too, but there's something exceedingly sinister about the isolation. When people are isolated from other people for huge expanses of time, things typically do not go all that well. We need socialization, interaction, and human comradeship. Read Oliver Onion's The Beckoning Fair One to get an eerie, it is a ghost story, take on what can go wrong with an isolated psychology. Pretty much all serial killers were loners. I know, I know, your wife, kids, husband, maybe a few others are always around, eh? But he says, I don't need to tell you that this is crazy-making in its own right. We have to roll with the times, right? Well, destroying the physical workplace was not a result of a natural evolution. It was implemented due to a totally fabricated emergency. 
and really has no reality or basis beyond that. Yet here it is to stay. Why is that? Well, you ponder that when he says, I'll list a few more things that make this a dicey idea, especially as it evolves into something much more sinister than it's starting out at. at starting out as, rather. My list, he says, isolation. Tendency to work too much for too long a stretch. No creative interaction with other employees. Lack of camaraderie. Less changing stimuli. Friends. Meeting members of the opposite sex. Too much time at home. No separation between work and home. Imagine of work as prison, or image, rather, of work as prison. Big Brother watching electronically. Fewer humans to laugh with. Less opportunity to integrate with the culture. There are a lot more, so he says, give some more in the comments. By the way, just as an aside, having worked from home now for the last few years, he's pretty spot on with a lot of this. And there was a period of time, you know, when I was, when I was living in uh, northern Utah, I would drive into Salt Lake City five days a week to go do a radio show. And, you know, I got to tell you, I hated that drive. I, I hated having to brave that Wasatch Front traffic, and I just, I, I thought, wow, working from home is going to be the coolest thing ever, and in many ways it was, but what Todd Hyen points out here is very true. You really have a tough time separating work and home. Somebody actually asked me today, so uh, you just work Monday through Friday? I'm like, I wish, but the fact of the matter is my work is at home, so if I have free time, and, you know, I can always find free time. I always have something that I can and should be doing. And sometimes it gets to where you feel like, man, I just, I can't ever get away from it. Now, Todd Hyen says, look, I'll say it again. It isn't all bad, all that bad yet. But he says, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And even though you might have more of a chance to goof off if working at home, most people say the work there is much more intense than at the office. The sort of play one encounters at the workplace is subtle, but it is psychologically healthier. Interaction with other humans on breaks, stretching your legs with a walk around the office, mingling with different stimuli, going to lunch with the gang, etc. Choosing what to wear every day. What all of this will eventually evolve into is anyone's guess, so if you think about that, be creative. And he says, what you come up with is probably far less frightening than the reality that eventually faces us. Now, I don't share that with you for the purpose of, you know, giving you anxiety or otherwise making you go, oh boy. Here it is, you know, doom and gloom. But I do think, you know, we, we have to consider the good as well as the bad. And I think Todd Hyen does a really good job of, of outlining both. So, for what it's worth, I share that with you. If you're one of those who works from home, man, I'd, I'd love to hear from you and see if this is your experience as well. I mean, I love not having to face traffic or burn gas, especially since fuel is so expensive. But I also find myself a lot more, um, uh, I'll just say it, I find myself a lot more enslaved to my work than I should be. And that's more of a mental attitude than, you know, a physical, you know, reality. It's just, if you, if you can't really leave work at work because your work is just in the next room, yeah, it kind of sticks with you. Maybe that's one of the reasons I'm up in the wee hours of the morning, you know, doing work. Also because it's quieter, because with the wife and kids and dogs around, I have to choose for quiet times when it's, you know, easier to record. But I digress. So here's a quick, uh, quick little message here from Doug Casey. What to watch for in the coming year. He shares his speculation, his number one speculation for 2023. 
I'm just going to encourage you, consider it. I'm not saying this is gospel, so you better, you know, live up to it. But he's asked the question in an interview, will 2023 be the year of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, or will this terrible idea be consigned to the dustbin of history? Here's how Doug Casey answers that question. He says, CBDCs are a disastrous idea, but that's never stopped the elite in the past. First, they did zero interest rates and then negative interest rates, which he says I thought was metaphysically impossible, but they did it. Then they went to massive quantitative easing, a dishonest euphemism for money printing. Well, the next thing is going to be central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, which will give them unprecedented control over the finances of the average person. So on the one hand, it should be cause for a revolution because it will actually turn people into serfs. But on the other hand, the average American has almost no understanding of economics. He has little grip on what's going on and believes propaganda. So his take is we're going to get CBDCs in 2023. And this is one of the scariest things on the horizon. Now, there's more in this article, too. He talks about, you know, where's your money best put? Gold, uranium, that kind of thing. He talks about uh, uh, China, you know, some of the geopolitical trends that are unfolding. This is all interesting stuff, but I'm telling you, to that CBDC decision, this is going to be a make and break or make or break decision, I think, for many of us. And I think about my friend, Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College. He has been out and will be going out still talking about the new economy. One of the central themes of his message is you cannot be free if you remain mired in the current debt based monetary system. Now, what that means is, is not, I, I can't explain it in 90 seconds to tell, well, it's just simply means you got to do it like this. But uh, Shannon does a very good job of outlining how the system is evolving into a system of control. And with a central bank digital currency, that control will be greatly upped. It's, it's going to be incredible. Every single dime you make, every dime you spend will be tracked, will be taxed, in fact, it will be maybe even conditionally allowed if, if you haven't exceeded your carbon credits for the month or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a dictator's dream come true. It's turnkey tyranny. And even if when it's first implemented, somebody doesn't immediately, you know, morph into Kim Jong-il, you know, to, to try to get absolute control over the people, it's there for someone who would be willing to step in and say, okay, now that we have this, Let's put this to good use. And that means we have to have some choices or at least some alternatives laid out before us. Now, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm not a financial advisor, but I'm telling you that it's probably wise to be thinking this through about what could I do? And I'm not just talking about in terms of where do I keep my retirement money? Where do, where do I hold value? I tend to lean towards things that are tangible, things you can actually hold in your hands. Therefore, you control them. If it exists in digital form, I hate to say this, but it's really not yours. Or at least it's, it's not yours in the sense that you have absolute control. Now, the exception might be certain cryptocurrencies. And again, that's if you hold and control your own wallet. But you got to beware because at the exchanges, you will find not only the IRS, but other regulatory people waiting you know, to see what you've been up to. I'm thinking, uh, let's, let's you know, break it down. Food, shelter, that kind of thing. That's where your priorities ought to be. 
And maybe some innovation wouldn't be a bad thing to consider as well. What else could we do? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for taking a chance and tuning in. I know there are many different voices out there, and I think most all of them have something of value to offer. So more so than just simply, I'm weighing in today, and I'm here to vent my spleen, and you pull up a chair, and I'll tell you everything that I'm, you know, that's grinding my gears right now. I really am hoping to add some value by at least providing some insight into things that are going on that may not be in the uh, the mainstream press uh uh, in, at least on their radar screen, you know, there are certain things they will not talk about. For instance, what's happening in Brazil right now. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Brazil's uh, president, apparently uh, there were some pretty fishy things about their election. Oh, here he goes again, the election denier. But uh, President Bolsonaro is uh, is not, or at least has not yet, vacated the presidential palace. I guess technically he doesn't have to do so until day after tomorrow. But uh, Brazil looks very much like it is shaping up for a fight. And the uh, communist, you know, candidate, Lula, who just uh, miraculously, somehow the votes worked out in his favor, kind of like they do here in America. Have you noticed? You know, it's kind of a common trend here. Elections are, are being gamed. Well, Lula wants to take power. The U.S. is throwing its weight behind Lula. And uh, it sounds like Bolsonaro and a lot of Brazilians are saying, hell no, we're not going to go that way. But uh, what do you hear from our mainstream media? That's right, crickets. Nobody's really talking about it. They're not talking about the Dutch farmers losing their farmland in the name of saving the planet from their nitrogen uh, you know, fertilization practices. I don't know. There's some pretty hinky stuff. It's going to be an interesting year for sure. But here's one of the more interesting stories. And, and uh, you know, I saw an article yesterday that, uh, that says, you know, all the concern over Drag Queen Story Hour, it's nothing more than a good old-fashioned moral panic. And I get it. For some people, you know, and, for, and this is for some of the really hardcore libertarians for whom, hey, man, anything goes and, you know, th- that have real antipathy toward any kind of religious influence, even if it's not mingled with the state. They just say that's oh, a good old fashioned moral panic. That's all this is. Now, I count myself as one of those people who says, no, it's not just moral panic. I understand how these things could become moral panic, you know, a witch hunt, if you will. But I think that for people who are paying attention, people who have actually looked at history, you will recognize that the decline of a society is underway. And, and I would point you towards 1920s Weimar Germany as a very good example of what it looked like. What happened before Hitler came to power and, you know, became the, the leader who led them to, you know, wherever they thought he was going to take them? You know, he was the one to restore them to their rightful place among the nations. And the answer is, however unpopular this may be, the German people turned loose of their sense of right and wrong. They didn't just uh, leave their moral compasses uncalibrated, they threw them out the window. And the debauchery of the Weimar Republic, especially in the 1920s, is legendary. Now, you wouldn't know this unless you actually did some looking into it, but, you know, the debauchery, the perversion, was, uh, it was legendary. And then one day, suddenly out of nowhere... Hitler came to power for some reason. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, we are about ready to, uh, to elect our own Hitler. 
I'm just saying we are following a very similar pattern in that we are turning loose of our sense of right and wrong. We are adrift morally. We've detached from our moral foundations and our moorings that that keep us from just getting tossed to and fro with whatever, you know, whichever direction the waves are going. And we seem to think that, but for us, it's going to be different. And it's not. So drag queen story hour, I know it seems like harmless fun to some, but it's the indication of a society that's in deep decline. And if we think that we're going to escape the same kind, by the way, the ancient Romans, the, the same kind of thing, this has happened in other societies too. J.D. Unwin's uh, Sex and Civilization cataloged 86 different civilizations, big and small. And when pleasure-seeking became their primary objective, every one of them declined. Every one of them, without exception. We're not going to be different. So that's the bad news. And again, it's not to get you whipped up into a moral panic. That's just to acknowledge um, the, the path we're on right now is, uh, is something that has played out before. It usually doesn't end well. But the cycle is going to play out. You and I need to be focused on building what comes next. Because we're going to need some wall builders. We're going to need the people like the people in, in Nehemiah who, you know, rebuilt the wall after it was destroyed. But they got to be people who are paying attention to what's going on. Now, let me share some good news with you, because this is actually some of the better news that I've heard. Um, maybe you heard me talk about this a couple of weeks ago. Kirk Cameron, the uh, one-time child sitcom star and uh, evangelical Christian father of six kids, has written a children's book that encourages good old-fashioned virtues like kindness, faithfulness, self-control. He actually went out there and approached 54 different libraries asking, could we have a reading of my book for kids? 54 libraries refused because the book had a Christian theme. Although many of these same libraries were very happy to have Drag Queen Story Hour because I don't know why, but apparently that's, uh, that's less harmful than exposing these kids to Christian thought. Now, the Indianapolis Public Library reluctantly reversed itself and thousands of people, including adults and children, attended. Even as public and private institutions try to force transgenderism on the American people, parents still want their kids to have a wholesome mental diet. So says Andrea Widberg in a piece that I'm including from AmericanThinker.com. Now, she points out here, most Americans are a tolerant people. Since the gay rights movement began in the late 1960s, they've concluded gays and lesbians shouldn't have to hide, nor should they be subject to discrimination. Since 2008... Americans have even come to accept gay marriage, but what they didn't expect was that LGBT, LGBTQ++ radicals would take over every institution in America, including child-centric institutions like schools, libraries, and Disney, and insist that children must be taught that biological sex is fake. The only real thing is feelings, which, of course, must be given reality through potentially deadly and certainly body-destroying hormones, along with mutilating surgery. Civil rights morphed into a deadly fantasy that's systematically being used to strip children's physical integrity and deny people their First Amendment rights. Andrea Widberg points out one of the front lines in the battle between radical gender activists and normal people is drag queens. Leftists insist that these usually incompetent performers who present as grotesque parodies of women and whose humor is entirely centered around sex and fecal matter must enter children, traditional children's domains like schools, libraries, street fairs, Christmas shows, etc. And because schools and libraries have come under the sway of leftist administrators, 
They're completely on board with that program. And that's how it came about that the same libraries that host drag queens on the events calendar refused to allow Kirk Cameron's reading from his new book, As You Grow, a book about biblical truths. Drag queens, good. Timeless values, bad. So, the outcry regarding those libraries that chose drag queens over Cameron was so loud that the Indianapolis Public Library actually ended up reversing course and begrudgingly allowed Cameron to appear. And the response from parents in the region was overwhelming. Thousands showed up to hear from a book that advances the values that make a, stay, a safe, stable, prosperous society for their children. Now, it's very easy, she says, to get d- depressed about what's happening in America. Andrea Whitberg says the Biden administration is destroying our borders. It's destroying our economy. It remains to be seen how resilient America really is. Trump had no chance to repair the eight years of damage that Obama caused, and Biden is doubling down on every Obama policy, letting us know who's really the president. So what gives her hope is the thousands of people who stood in line to hear Kirk Cameron read something wholesome and uplifting to their children. Now, sure, there are leftist parents who are either members of the transgender cult or committed to virtue signaling about it. However, most parents looking at their healthy, innocent children want them to stay that way with their minds and bodies intact and their values elevated, rather than letting radicals debase and destroy those same children. She says, what also gives me hope is something that I've been thinking about for a while, which is that America's parents, it's America's parents, rather, who will save America if she can still be saved. It is they who are pushing back against crazed leftist school boards, encouraging their children not to go to the overpriced indoctrination factories that were once our colleges and universities and making an outcry when institutions refuse to allow wholesome fare for their children. So Andrea Whitberg says congratulations, not just to Kirk Cameron, but to every parent who stood in line at the Indianapolis Public Library. In your own way, you are constitutional warriors who are massed in the front line of the ideological battle playing out in America. I think of it as a good example of people voting with their feet. And you notice they didn't have to get violent You didn't need need armed Antifa protesters out there menacing people with their assault rifles slung around their necks. (laughs) But for some reason, the drag queen story hours do need that kind of intimidation, lest somebody, you know, make make a sour face at what's going on, you know, with children present. In other words, one of those ideologies requires force and intimidation to keep people in line. And the other one motivates out of a sense of love and duty. I'll let you decide which one of those uh, probably is standing on legitimacy and which one has the moral high ground and which one doesn't. This is The Brian Hyde Show.